Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, for the past two years, the world has been facing one of the biggest challenges of our lifetime with the COVID-19 crisis. In this last episode of the year, we invited again Laura Alfers, the Social Protection Program Coordinator at WIGO, and Rachel Moussier, Deputy Coordinator of the Social Protection Program and Head of the Child Care Initiative, also here at WIGO, to discuss the way in which the pandemic has exposed blind spots in social protection systems and reinforced women informal workers' exclusion. In this talk, they explain the impact of the pandemic in their work and in the field of social protection globally. They also highlighted how WIGO and workers' organizations in the informal economy are engaging with social protection and developing and deepening alliances with labor movements. And now, let's hear our talk with Laura Alfers and Rachel Musia. Laura Alfers and Rachel Musia, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Cyrus. Nice to be here. Thanks, Cyrus. Good to be here. So before we dive in, I would like to know from both of you how the last two years have been for, for you and the WeGo Social Protection Team. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, it's been a, a tough two years, but also a year with lots of opportunities to highlight social protection and informal workers as an issue. Um, of course, it's been also extremely difficult. The sort of level of work that we've had to keep up with has been tough. And of course, just the level of devastation around us has also been hard to deal with at times. But I feel like we might be coming out the other side, but watch the space, I suppose. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's been a challenging period, but also we've learned a lot, we've grown a lot, and importantly, I think we've built stronger partnerships over this period in a way that maybe would not have happened as quickly. So, you know, lots to take away from these past two years. So I'm really happy we're talking, all three of us, together today. Now let's dive right into it. Let's start with you, Rachel. Can you identify any social protection blind spots that were highlighted by the COVID-19 in relation to women working in the informal economy? Yeah, thanks for that question, Sirius. I think the first blind spot that emerged for us, but it's something that we knew of prior to the pandemic, but I think became more visible for those within social protection policy debates, but also beyond is that most working age adults in the informal economy do not earn enough to be able to contribute to social or private insurance schemes. And so when a catastrophe hits, when a crisis strikes, they have nothing to rely on. Mainstream economic policies assume working people should be able to earn enough to look after themselves by saving or contributing to insurance. However, many workers in the informal economy once they were unable to go out to work, had to immediately rely on very limited savings or sell their assets or take out loans 
just in order to buy food and afford basic services. And that really highlighted, I think, that 61% of workers in the informal economy are self-employed and so do not have an employer to contribute to social insurance schemes on their behalf. They're often not eligible to register for social insurance schemes or the contribution and benefits are not tailored to their specific needs and capacities. And I think the devastation that workers in the informal economy faced almost immediately once lockdowns were announced in 2020 really brought to life this concept of the missing middle in social protection policy to governments, to municipalities, to informal workers organizations as well. So that's one blind spot where there's been more light that's been shed on A second blind spot that was highlighted was that women and girls fill the gaps in social protection policy through their unpaid care work, which directly impacts the type of informal employment women engage in and their earning potential. So women workers, be they in the informal or in the formal economy, picked up the additional care responsibilities brought on by crash and school closures and online learning. We Go Global Survey's findings show that women who reported an increase in care responsibilities in 2020 spent less time working and they were earning only 50% of their pre-COVID earnings as compared to 70% for all other workers in the informal economy. So we really see that without a strong social protection system, it's women who pay the price in terms of spending more time on unpaid care work and having less time to engage in paid work and recover their earnings and regain their livelihoods. Mm, that's very interesting. It seems there were lots of changes in the field of social protection. How did the pandemic affect WIGO's social protection programs work? Laura? Well, I think as Rachel has just mentioned, you know, the first shock that hit informal workers was just the absence of any kind of access to cash (laughs) or any kind of livelihood, which would allow them to put the basics, to put food on the table and for the basics of survival. So with that great need kind of overwhelmed everything else, particularly during 2020 and I think even into 2021. And what it did to us as we go social protection program was push us, as Rachel has suggested, towards focusing on more sort of traditional social protection concerns around, you know, social assistance, such as cash grants and in-kind food relief, um, as well as the issue of insurance. Um, previously, our work has focused most extensively on public services. We have a strong pillar of work on healthcare, and uh, Rachel leads a, another pillar of work on childcare. And there are good reasons for this. Informal workers, as Rachel said, are excluded from social protection, whether it's from the work-related insurances or whether it's from social assistance, which targets those outside of the labor market. Informal workers just didn't come into contact with social protection quite often. So we didn't have a lot of demand from worker organizations who make up the WeGo network to work on it. And it was a different case for public services like health and childcare, which workers both have some experience of because they do come into contact with these services and with healthcare in particular. So we had to get up to speed on issues around cash grants and food relief. This was not really an area 
that the Uyghur Social Protection Team had done much work on. You know, what is our position on this? What works best? <laughs> and fortunately, we received a lot of support through partnerships and alliances, for example, with a group called the Social Protection Alternatives for COVID-19 Expert Advice Group, who I was a part of, but from whom I also received a lot of support in learning more about the issue of cash grants and food relief. Mm. What about in the long term? Longer term, though, I mean, I think now and coming to the end of 2021, we're starting to think, well, what does this all mean longer term? And from the way things are shaping up, I think in middle income countries, we will need to still keep grappling with the question of cash and cash transfers and how we work on this. You know, I think in some countries like South Africa, there is a strong push for a basic income grant to reach people of working age. And I think these moves are things we need to think about how we engage with. I think in low-income countries, the political opportunity is probably going to be less around cash and more around private or social insurance schemes, contributory schemes that are being extended to informal workers. And I think there, our focus is going to be on how we make these kinds of systems more inclusive to informal workers and how we make sure they are financed in a way that is fair to especially poorer informal workers. And of course, that does not mean that public services as an issue goes away. Of course, health is currently a major concern. And as Rachel indicated, childcare has been raised as an issue. And I think Hopefully, in the coming years, we'll get the attention it deserves. And how did the pandemic affect Wigo's research agenda? Not necessarily the, the issues that I've just described, but I think, you know, the context in general has shifted us towards more explicitly addressing the economic dimensions of social protection. <laughs> Economists are often called the high priests of public policy, and I think we want to think about that, you know, what are the economic assumptions or the assumptions that the high priests of public policy are making in the design of social protection systems, which lead to the types of social protection which are less inclusive or do not cover informal workers adequately, the types of social protection we have. Why is it that we still have systems which are failing to cover so many of the world's workers? And so I think in the in the coming years, you know, we've sort of identified a few key economic assumptions or orthodoxies, as we call them, which we think work to undermine sustainable, inclusive and adequately financed social protection systems. One of those is around the idea that social protection is not economically productive. I think that this idea has been challenged at global level quite extensively. The ITUC recently put out a study showing that investments in social protection can have an important impact on economic growth. But I'm not sure that that always translates into impact at national level. I think in South Africa today, for example, there's a huge tussle within the South African government as to whether a basic income is affordable or not. And there is a drive to produce local data to this effect, which may have more of an impact on local policymaking. So potentially, I think there's still some space to do at national level on that. Um, I think one of the other ideas we want to think about challenging is that social protection attached to an employment relationship or an economic relationship, which might not be an employment relationship, but, but there may still be an unequal relationship between an owner of capital and, and a person who is creating the labor that they profit from, creates a labor market distortion. And this links into arguments that, you know, mixed social protection schemes, which have a component of subsidization for informal workers may incentivize informality or even incentivize unemployment. 
And I think these arguments make big assumptions about uh, informal workers' choice to be informal, about what incentivizes behavior and for whom, and ignore the fact that labor markets are incredibly distorted by power relations in the first place. And then I think we also want to think through, I mean, linked to that is, you know, what are the possibilities for sectoral financing that builds not on employment relationships, but on alternative economic relationships, for example, home workers and global supply chains? Are there ways that we can think about attaching financing to social protection onto the global brands who profit from home workers' work? And thinking the same about waste pickers and extended producer responsibility legislation and whether that might create a relationship that allows allows waste pickers to derive additional financing for social protection. So these are, I think, are some of the economics of social protection, as we're calling it, that we want to focus on over the next couple of years. Now, Rachel, what changes could you see in the field of childcare stemming from the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, like with the issue of social protection itself, once the pandemic hit, I think it really raised the visibility of social protection, and it also raised the visibility of inadequate childcare arrangements. Because all of a sudden, women and men who were working were now at home with their children due to crash in school closures. And just the responsibility and the burden that it was to care for children while also working or trying to earn an income or in the case of many workers in the informal economy during the lockdowns, having children at home but not being able to work and so not being able to put food on the table. I think that reality really came through to us through member-based organizations of workers in the informal economy, where we heard about how women in particular were struggling to care and also uh, find time for paid work if it was even accessible to them. And I think another area that within childcare that shifted is this greater appreciation within the early childhood development community who perhaps didn't look at the informal, formal economies as much, but this greater appreciation of the disparity between support for young children whose caregivers are in the formal economy as compared to those in the informal economy. So we saw that in high-income countries, Governments quickly rolled out extended parental leave, paid sick leave, or tax credits to families with young children. But those are not policies that are transferable to low- and middle-income countries where a large share of the population is in the informal economy. So what policies then are effective to addressing child care needs in low- and middle-income countries for workers in the informal economy? And I think just uh, sort of prior to the pandemic, we had started having these conversations with UNICEF and the ILO around adapting family-friendly policies for workers in the informal economy. And given the way in which the pandemic, the impact that it's had on care, be it healthcare, but also childcare, has just put that on the fore of, of the agenda in mainstream media, but also in social protection discussions, I think has has shifted the discussion now within early childhood development spaces, but also in our engagements between informal workers organizations and the trade union movement. So the global union federations, including ITUC, Public Services International, UNI, Education International, and IDWF, the International Domestic Workers Federation, with WeGo came together to promote the 
annual day of action for care. And though this is the third time that we've had or celebrated this annual day, I think what's changed in the context of the pandemic is the centrality of care is so evident in the way that we live. And yet, at the same time, juxtaposing that with the poor working conditions of so many care workers, including child care workers who are disproportionately women working in the informal economy, including domestic workers. And so I think that has shifted, and there are conversations happening now around the social organization of care and centering child care as part of economic recovery plans. That's a demand that I think is coming from different quarters of social policy and the trade union movement, the labor movement, but also the feminist movement that I think is really gaining speed and momentum in light of the pandemic. Rachel, you have been following closely the International Labor Conference, which has placed social protection as one of the key themes of this year's event. What was the importance of that? for advancing the agenda for informal workers globally. The first thing to note is that the International Labor Conference has always been an important space for WeGo and the global networks of informal workers organizations to push for greater legal recognition of workers in the informal economy in international labor standards and forge alliances with trade unions and supportive governments. And this year's recurrent discussion in June on social protection was a chance to organize, discuss, and strategize around social protection policy with the global networks. As Laura mentioned, there was this sudden and immediate interest in social protection from member-based organizations of informal workers and the global networks that they were affiliated to. And so having planning for the ILC allowed us to sit down together and to strategize The global networks called for a mix of social assistance, social insurance, and quality public care services for workers in the informal economy. And when speaking in plenary sessions, women worker leaders from the global networks directly contested employers' use of the term universal social protection, which they used to refer to a dilution and reduction of employer contributions and an expansion of flat-rated social assistance measures with the intention of reaching workers in the informal economy. For instance, the International Domestic Workers Federation called for legal recognition of domestic workers, so employers are obligated to contribute to their social insurance. As self-employed workers, represented through StreetNet International, HomeNet International, and the Global Alliance of Wastepickers, for instance, called on governments to partially or fully subsidize their contributions to social insurance schemes. So these become more accessible, particularly to women workers in the informal economy. And one of the wins that we can say that we had as we go in the global networks is that there is consistent reference to the ILO Recommendation 204 on the transition from the informal to the formal economy. And this reinforces the ILO's mandate to continue working on the extension of social protection with member-based organizations of workers in the informal economy. So with the support of the workers group, the governments and the ILO, we have been able to reinforce that mandate for the ILO to continue engaging with workers in the informal economy around social protection. What about workers' organizations? How do you think this crisis has shaped their alliance building and partnerships? Let's start with, with you, Laura. 
Yeah, so I think the great thing about social protection is it is something that all workers can agree on, that is that all workers need social protection. So there are possibilities for making alliances with, with the formal labor movement, but also uh, different worker organizations find natural allies in different places. And that very much depends on the issues they organize around, as well as the relative openness of the formal trade union movement to working with informal workers. Certainly in Africa as a region, I think the door is opening to more explicit alliances with the formal trade union movement at regional level. We know that at national level already that many organizations of informal workers do depend on trade unions to give them access to policy spaces around social protection. And so this is a really important alliance. And I think we are hoping to build stronger alliances with organizations such as the ITUC Africa on social protection. We are in the process of working on a joint video on social protection for all workers, drawing on each of our sort of respective strengths and areas of work and hoping next year to, to hold a joint regional strategic workshop. But in Southeast Asia, we're starting to see more cross-sector collaboration on social protection within the informal economy and within organizations representing informal workers. So, for example, we recently held a, our first Southeast Asian regional strategy meeting, which brought together representatives from StreetNet International, as well as, as HomeNet's Southeast Asia. And there, I think, particularly for HomeNet, a real strength is the developing collaborations with civil society in particular. And I think HomeNet has had a really interesting collaboration with the Asia Monitoring Resource Center in piloting their social protection workers' education course earlier this year. Yeah, I just want to build on Laura's point. I think what we are also seeing is a greater interest in workers' education. So, for instance, this year we did a series of social protection training workshops with HomeNet International affiliates across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And one of the things that struck us is just the scope for potentially rolling out similar workshops for other self-employed informal workers, and that there's a lot that they could build on, a lot of common demands around social protection that they could build together across sectors so that the same social protection policies that would benefit home-based workers could also benefit street vendors and could also benefit waste pickers because they share a similar status in employment as self-employed workers in the informal economy. And so I think that's an area where as we start engaging more around debates around social insurance and how to design schemes that are inclusive of self-employed workers in the informal economy, these alliances that we're really seeing growing stronger between the global networks could also be mirrored at the national level with greater collaboration across sectors of workers in the informal economy. I suppose just to say from a childcare perspective, we have certainly expanded our relationships and partnerships within the early childhood development community, within the trade union movement and the feminist movement. But where I think we're seeing that explicitly or in a, in a more tangible way is sort of at the city level, for instance, in Accra or in Durban, where we are seeing We Go Focal Cities program in Accra sitting across the table from the director of social development from the Accra Metropolitan Municipality, 
the Ministry of Gender, Social Protection and Children, along with informal traders, organizations, and early childhood development professionals and urban planners. So those kinds of collaborations where it really gets into the complexity of extension, in this case of childcare services and markets, we're, we're really seeing that take shape. And these are processes that happened prior to the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has given greater urgency to the provision of childcare services and markets, for instance, and has allowed these relationships to flourish. Mm, to wrap up, I would like to pose two questions for both of you. What do you think were the main lessons this crisis has taught us in relation to the social protection responses to it? And what do you think are the main trends that we might observe in the coming years in the field of social protection? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to predict the future, you know, addressing your question of, of trends. I think I mentioned earlier that I think potentially in middle-income countries, we may see a move towards extending cash grants, um, those kind of social protection measures to working-age people you know, and directly to them as unemployment benefits or as basic incomes. Um, but of course, that also depends on what happens with, with austerity and, and whether governments are actually willing to, to spend that money. It's not necessarily a guarantee, but I think there is much more of an impetus towards that now. And I think in low-income countries, it is still going to be, I think, the extension through, through contributory systems that we are going to have to continue engaging with, probably in both contexts, actually, because... You know, in middle-income countries, there are informal workers who, who would want to and be eligible for contributory schemes as well. But I think all of this is going to be against a, a sort of unstable backdrop, a social and economic backdrop. And I think that's why we want to focus a little bit more on, on the sort of economics of social protection moving forward. But I think for me, perhaps one of the most striking things I've, I've, that's come out of this whole crisis for me is that people are less likely to demand and actively engage with policies if their lives have never been touched by them. I mean, just the way that we've seen worker organizations within the WeGo network latch on to the idea of social protection now that they have some experience of what this is. It's not to say we didn't have organizations within the network who weren't actively working on social protection. The Self-Employed Women's Association, UTEP in, in Argentina, are all sort of leaders in the in the field. But many, many of our organizations, this was the first time that social protection was actually something that touched their lives. And there's there's now a huge interest in it coming from the ground. So in this respect, I would say COVID has opened up an opportunity for, for mass mobilization around the issue. And and here is where I, I would link back to Rachel's comments about, you know, workers' education and training. Certainly that's going to be another big focus for us in, in the coming years is, is ensuring that the networks, the worker networks, the organizations are well equipped with knowledge and with advocacy skills to engage in the debates around social protection that are that are certainly coming towards them and to ensure that whatever it is that is designed is, is as inclusive and fair to informal workers as possible. Rachel, do you want to jump in? I think Laura's done a great job at, at summarizing uh, the key sort of trends and, and opportunities that we see ahead. I think, you know, this point around 
the terms of inclusion for workers in the informal economy and the fact that they will be faced with social protection proposals by governments. And being able to have the capacity to engage, to reflect, to critique is so key. And, you know, we're already seeing this with, for instance, the growing debate around the expansion of digital social protection systems. And what does that mean in terms of inclusion for women workers in the informal economy, given the persistent gender digital divide? What does it mean in terms of privatization, data protection, financial inclusion, and surveillance of beneficiaries? And so I think that these are questions that we ourselves have to continue exploring through partnerships and also developing a critique or a a set of demands, deeper understanding of the ways in which workers in the informal economy will be pushed to have a response to these systems or will be forcibly included in these systems. And so they need to be able to assert their voice in critiquing and ensuring that their demands are heard. And that's where, you know, the partnership that, for instance, Laura mentioned earlier around ITUC Africa and the trade union movement is so important around how in the next coming years do workers in the informal economy actually get a seat at the table when it comes to negotiating social insurance policy or when it comes to talking about designing and monitoring social assistance schemes. And that's where I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but these partnerships that we're seeing emerging could lead us to new bases for solidarity and social dialogue. Laura Alferis and Rachel Moussier, thank you very much. Thank you, Cyrus. Thanks, Cyrus. It's been great talking today. And if you want to learn more about Regal's work on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on informal workers and learn more about the economics of social protection, we will leave some links at the description of the episode to our most recent briefs, blogs, and other online resources. And please don't forget to follow Wigo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get our latest publications, events and news. I am Sirius Afshar and this was the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.